Hi, it's Nahum Siegel with another edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent guests who've appeared on JM in the AM. We'll start this week with the um, conversation that we had with Rabbi Yoshua Fast, our most recent conversation with Rabbi Fast, the co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh. He had some big news regarding the future of Nefesh Benefesh, the organization in Israel, and some inter- interesting news in general about the summer of uh, 2020. Uh, my conversation with Rabbi Yoshua Fass here on a JM Rewind edition on the Nahum Siegel Network. become the theme song for the co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh. Yes, he is somebody I could speak to every day on the air, and I apologize if I do. Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> Nothing to apologize for, I can tell you that much. It's always amazing speaking to him and hearing what he has to say. And now, believe it or not, even with everything we've discussed over the last couple of weeks, there's even more, even more big news from Nefesh Benefesh. Rabbi Yehoshua Fass, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much, Nachum, and to all your listeners. I have to say, before we even start, I started my morning, a really early morning, yeah. on my way to Yushalayim, listening to what? What do you think I was listening to? The Nachum Single Network. No, <laughs> I was not. What were you listening but I needed my fix of Nachum Siegel, so I was listening to Behind the Bima with Rabbi Goldberg, <laughs> Rabbi Brody, and Rabbi Moskowitz interview you last night. Your, na- your name actually came up in that interview. Yes, I heard. <laughs> but, but it was great. It was great. You know, that talk about an all- I, mean, I know this is not our topic, but give me a second. Talk about an, sure. all- talk about an all-star lineup. BRS down yeah. in Florida, it literally has an all-star lineup. It's incredible the leadership they have down there. Yeah, no, it's uh, Baruch Hashem. They've done fantastic, fantastic stuff. They continue to do remarkable work, and it continues Rabbi Brander's dream when he founded the, founded the community. And we should mention, so of course, that Nefesh Benefesh began, quote-unquote, for those who remember the story, at Boca Raton yeah. Synagogue. Yes, it did. And it seemed like they remembered you fondly, Rabbi Fass, even though you're 6,000 miles away. They better. They're my <laughs> friends. So I, would, I, would, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, really. Although I haven't got an invitation to Behind the Bima, so uh, they, you uh, they, outrated me. So they it's didn't, fine. You, have, you haven't been on yet? That's so funny. I'll tell you. Because when they, when they scheduled me, I said, who am I bumping? Let me know who I'm bumping. Because <laughs> I couldn't uh, I, I believe they actually wanted me on, but I was on before you. What a statement that is. I was not happy with the fact. I don't know if you caught this. I was not happy that they were, they were not intrigued by my Herzl uh, figurine that was sitting next to me in the studio. It was a shame. They, they belittled it. as I, almost a, a plaything. I was shocked. <laughs> Rabbi Fez, I was shocked. I, I almost didn't sleep a week last night after that. 
Anyway, let's Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, Rabbi Fast. The Jerusalem municipality, as the Jerusalem Post puts it, has granted Nefesh Benefesh a permanent Aliyah center in the holy city of Jerusalem. Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. Thank you so much. We are flying high here. can only yeah, imagine. Two years ago when I saw that uh, the building and the property, um, Tony and I were, it was right after a charter flight. Two years ago after the August charter flight, someone said, you got to see this property. Tony and I opened the door. We walked in and we grabbed each other's arms and said, this is home. And it's been uh, two years of protocols, processing, advocacy, lobbying. And for Thursday night, a few days ago, last week, Thursday night, the municipality, Yushalai municipality, voted to uh, give us the property, the building, and we have 12 months to finish the construction and renovations and move in. So we are, we are now, besides this incredible interest and wave of Aliyah coming in, we are now also building an Aliyah center in the heart of Yushalayim, across from the Supreme Court, right next to Gansakar, and it could be, I just, it could be really a fulfillment of so many dreams and a fulfillment of so m- many projects that we wanted to put into place, but we just didn't have a center. So I'm excited. Well, you and I um, have already said that we look forward to having a L'chaim, uh in that new building. And based on what you're saying, the timeline, that L'chaim, assuming there's travel by then, uh, could take place in 2021, right? It could happen in the second half of next year. Oh, yeah, please, God. That's amazing. By the, by the way, everybody who's trying to build hotels and residential properties in Jerusalem for the last 40 years are, are going to ask you what your secret is that you got this done so quickly, frankly. Yeah, because <laughs> as uh, someone was saying in our staff, it takes six months just to renovate a bathroom at your house here. So exactly. we're going to do a building and a half. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of friends of mine who've been working on projects since the 70s who who, who are still trying to push papers through. They're going to be calling you in an instant after this conversation. It's okay. Uh, this morning, our dear mutual friend, Avi Levine, walked into my office with a hard hat with a Netflix logo on it. So. I think they're expecting me to roll up my sleeves and start breaking drywall. <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. Rabbi Yoshua Fass is with us. We're talking about the big news. There's actually going to be, I can't believe that's the neighborhood that it's in. I mean, Gan Soccer is obviously well known to this audience. Anybody who's been to Jerusalem knows exactly the area you're speaking of and what an incredible area that is. Now, now frankly, take me through this because when you got to your building, uh, the one that's been home now for how many years? How many years are you in uh in we've been here for 15 years. Wow. 15 and a half, 16 years. When yeah. you got to that building, you did envision it because of its space, location, and 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 some of the enhancements that it had uh, to be a real Aliyah center, to be, to be able to have real live seminars, events, and all this came to fruition. I mean, you, you did incredible stuff uh, with that building in Givacho, obviously great office space, call center, et cetera, et cetera. It's a place that, frankly, I find as a visitor very comfortable, and it looks to me that your staff finds it very comfortable. H- how much more will you be able to do in a real, you know, permanent Aliyah center that's now going to be built? Well, our we love this place, and it's uh, given us tremendous mazel and hatzlacha and success. Um, but our auditorium can fit maybe 80 people. Right. So when we would have visiting missions and federations or high schools or even soldiers or other countries come, we, we're maxed out at 70, 80 people. 
Um, our new auditorium is uh, the main floor is a convention center. It can hold 400 people comfortably. Wow. Um, so we can take high schools. We can take groups. We can have, you know, our mega event in America. We can have mini mega events for Olim who made Aliyah. Right. And we can do it weekly, quarterly. We can have, uh, I have dreams of doing at-cost weddings for lone soldiers. Um, so we can have a chuppah on the roof and, and, uh, and a simcha for them. Oh, the what, what, what's amazing about your dreams is that they come true. That's what's amazing about your and and thank God, unlike uh, you know, uh, unlike certain people in Jewish history who knew that those dreams would only come true way after they're 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 gone, you know, generations later, and that they were sowing the seeds for it. You get to see the fruits of your labor. Just amazing, uh, the dreams that you're dreaming and, and what's going on. So, so if JM and the AM ever does, and we don't have to, I don't, I don't need to be yelled at. You this. have your room if, already if reserved. JM, if JM and the AM ever does really make the move to Israel, the press conference will be in the room you just described in that big 400 seat auditorium. It's not. It's forget about the press conference. I'm talking about your studio. <laughs> your studio will have its own room. You're telling me if I wanted to, if I wanted to permanently broadcast from Jerusalem starting in the second half of 2021, you would have if a- you Nahum, if you move and you want to continue broadcasting, I would I would vacate my office and you can take my office. That's that's how much a I value you. I value as a friend, value and your impact. Your impact and your voice is so unique and spectacular that uh, I think it um, could could fit into any halls of importance and significance. Not that my office is anything of significance, but wow. uh, I think anyone anyone would would make sure that they afford you the location and the kavod that you need to continue your incredible work. Okay, give me a chance to pick myself up off the floor. Ah, Rabbi Yoshua Fass is with us. A couple of other things uh, of newsworthy uh, content. The, uh, going back to the Jerusalem Post, I've been covering you a lot recently. Uh, they claim, and honestly, I just don't have in front of me the stats that you gave us on the air. I'm sure they're similar, obviously. Uh, they said last year in the first three weeks of June, I think you had told us about the first two weeks, in the first three weeks of June, you claim that 5,000 households had reached out from North America to the Nefesh Benefesh Aliyah hotline. This year, in that same period, roughly the 1st through the 21st of June, 25,000 families have contacted Nefesh Benefesh in that time period. I mean, these stats that you that you hit us with, you know, like right before Shavuos, I mean, they just keep coming fast and furious. It's like it, the numbers are insane at the, at the moment. They're insane. They're staggering. They're telescoping. We, when you put it on a chart, the numbers, it's just, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It it's is. absolutely, it's jaw-dropping. Um, to think, and I, I, I get them generated, statistics generated daily. If you look at the month of just June in 2019, we had 398, 400 families who finished the entire process, submitted their applications, everything done. This year in June, 1,352 families finished the process. Wow. That's families. So if you look at the average family, it's two and a half, if I show two and a half people per household, that's what our uh, median average is. Talking about <laughs> a few thousand people who just finished the process in June alone. Unbelievable. Uh, there's another area of uh, insight that you can give us. 
when you were on the air last time, you gave us a list. It was either the last time or, or two times ago. It was a list of um, group flight dates that Nefesh Benefesh has booked with El Al, I believe. N- not that I memorize our interviews, but one might think so after I say this. I believe it was four in July, eight in August, and one in September, if I if I remember correctly. My my kids would my, my kids would be shocked that I can't actually recite the dates for you at this point. Anyway, um we read yesterday that El Al has canceled all flights until further notice. Not really COVID-related, but a little bit COVID-related because it's a labor situation. But if you read it carefully, it really is something a little bit unique for these times. Can you tell us? First of all, we're anxious to know because you're you're an insider when it comes to travel to Israel. We're anxious to know when we'll be able to finally be admitted to Israel. But but more importantly, is this going to affect the group flights, etc.? We will get confirmation in the next few hours if the internal fighting or the internal politics of LL and the current negotiations with the government will affect our booked um, group flights and cargo flights. But we have a plan B, and uh, we'll have the seats available for for the OVM if necessary. Um, I'm not concerned, but we will. Um, oh, plan B is already in place. Is there a plan C? for an Army cargo jet to come and have no seats inside and put 1,100 people in there with their luggage and fly them to Israel? Is that is that a plan C? So one of my kids asked, one of my kids asked last night, what's plan C? I said, mules. What did you say? Mules. Donkeys. <laughs> mules. Mules. I, of course, referencing the record-breaking flight from Ethiopia, but the reason I say it like that is because it sounds like, by hook or by crook, you are determined that if people want to move to Israel, you will do what is necessary to make sure they get there when they want to get there, a hundred percent. We have to. It's it's the it's the oxygen of our of our dream of our nation of our of our destiny. I was in the government yesterday, and and they said at the end of the day, no matter what, you will not let an Oleh behind. And uh, when it comes to either the financial need from the government to afford this wave of Aliyah, or the transportation, um, there are a lot a lot of challenges. And it's a perfect storm. We've never had, we've never had an interest like this since 1948, and we've never had this, these amount of challenges at the same time. Uh, corona has created so many bureaucratic hurdles that uh, that we spend so much of our time trying to reconcile and find a solution, and then the moment that we've solved this issue, another one pops up, and and it's. And uh, we're dedicated, and everyone is committed, and everyone's working hard, and no one's sleeping to make sure that people who want to fulfill their dream can get here. But to say that it has been um, a walk in the park, that would be the furthest from the street. <laughs> yeah, that I can imagine. You know, it's funny. You say it's since 1948. But if we really sit, if we'd have an opportunity to sit together and, and schmooze this over, as the expression, oh, it, it, could, have fun. It, it could be. It could be when you think about it. Since since the Jews were in the desert, this might be the greatest interest and enthusiasm for getting to the land of Israel, literally in the history of the Jewish people. Well, you have to. You would. It would be a tricky definition because right. you would have to talk about how you define the Russian Aliyah right. and the Ethiopian Aliyah and the first Aliyah and second Aliyah. So you would have to define. What is uh, an aliyah of distress versus aliyah of choice? Right, and a, all, all, and also, a willingness. Right. Also, but, these... uh, I mean, if you look at the numbers of of the second Commonwealth of Ezra and Ephemia, 
Um, we're talking now very few numbers. It's debated, but the maximum number that's given is 38,000 people moving right. as, a, as, as a movement. So, uh, no, the, the numbers are remarkable. People are coming for the right reasons. Uh, people have had a time to pause and to focus and introspect. And, um, and, it, and we just have to work our darndest to make sure it happens for them. Um, and, and the truth is, you've worked your darndest to make it as easy as possible, yet another reason why we are enjoying what I just described, what could be the greatest push of Aliyah ever, because, again, people see that there's a system in place that is not nearly as complicated as some of the other systems. Uh, you know, no 40 years in the desert, uh, <laughs> no no pushback after, after uh, the first exile, um, uh, you know, the, the, not having to go uh, over land and sea uh, in the 17 and 1800s in order to get to uh, the land of Israel. It, 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 is, it is simply a different landscape, the whole Aliyah process right now. By the way, there was one other article I saw where the um, uh, Karen Kayama chairman said that Israel will bring thousands to the Negev and the Galilee. I, I'm not minimizing the story, but, but I mean, is, is there anything special about this? Meaning you've been saying this that your efforts with 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 JNF and and you know and just as Nefesh Benefesh, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, your efforts for the north and south have been very strong over the last two decades. Is this a big thing, or simply it was just uh, you know the, he he made a statement and therefore they covered it? No. So the chairman of Kakal Daniyater has two paths. There's one, the proximal plan, and that's continuing to build the periphery. But there's also Project 2040, which is a tremendous uh, investment of vision and resources to see, to populate the periphery and to develop them as real viable options for Israelis and for immigrants. And uh, a lot of scaffolding and a lot of planning and building the South and building the North. And it's, it's, it's remarkable to see just how people have vision. I've seen, I, I've seen the architectural scaffolding of these plans, uh, and, and they're incredible. So anywhere from technology to, to parks to housing, and, and it's uh, to draw new populations to, to to the periphery. So, and we're part of that of that vision, and we're part of that plan um, in a very small way. Mm-hmm. They're thinking about a million people, um, close to a million people over the next twenty something years to the periphery. But it can happen if there's concerted effort, and we. This is a country that's built on nisim, on miracles that happen daily, mm-hmm. if not hourly. So if there are people who are pushing and they're they're hand-in-hand working with uh, the Almighty, uh, incredible things happen. Well, now that you mention this about the 2040s, etc., I don't feel as silly uh, with the item that I have on our agenda for the next time you and I actually have a face-to-face meeting. And, and of course, that what what is that item on the agenda? The item is uh, where will you and I be on April the uh, 16th, 2048? Uh, which will be the day that we celebrate the 100th birthday of the state of Israel. I think you and I have to start talking about that. You know, what kind of day is that going to be? And uh, are we going to set aside time to uh, celebrate together that day? I would hope so. Yeah, exactly. You bring the hummus. (laughs) You think hummus will still be really (laughs) popular in Israel by then? We're talking about almost 30 years from now. You think it'll still be a big item? (laughs) I I hope we won't be wearing masks. That's That's my dream. Well, if we're wearing masks, they ain't going to let anyone travel in anyway. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, we're hoping not wearing masks, and uh, hopefully by then people will realize that the future of the Jewish people is, in fact, 
in the state of Israel. Uh, the Jerusalem municipality has granted Nefesh Benefesh a permanent Aliyah center. It's going to be amazing. Bezrat Hashem. We wish uh, a big Mazal Tov to Rabbi Fest and the entire Nefesh Benefesh family and everybody out there. If you are uh, among those, the tens of thousands in North America that are now considering Aliyah, that are now considering a move to Israel, it's really easy, this process. 866-4-ALIYAH, 866-4, and then A-L-I-Y-A-H, and of course, um, uh, nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il. Did I, did I tell you my other dream for the uh, 100th birthday of the state of Israel? Did I ever share this with you? I don't remember. Did I'm I... not sure. Tell me. Uh, I would like, and, and I'll tell you, when I first heard this idea like 15 years ago, we were in such a different political place, meaning the state of Israel is such a different, ridiculous political space to even consider it. But now, as we see the way Israel is developing as a real leader and being recognized as a real leader by people who were once our enemies and by so many on this globe, I don't know if it's crazy for the, for the 2048 Summer Olympics to be in Israel during Israel's 100th birthday. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be amazing. And by the way, there there is based on a but based on a show that I saw while I was in Israel a few years ago, one of these you know morning shows on TV or something. There's actually somebody who's chairing this effort for Israel 100 to be the home of the 2048. Yeah, they already started to lobby for this. I don't know if they're lobbying or it's somebody who, again, an older gentleman, so I don't think he thinks he'll be around in 2048, but he thinks it would be an amazing way to commemorate Israel's 100th birthday. And frankly, on the even more serious side, because I am being serious about this, but on the even more serious side, you have to agree that, that 15 years ago we would have laughed at this idea, knowing Israel's place and how it was viewed. Correct. And no. now... Halavai, uh, if only it would happen, but it's, it's not far I mean, a little bit far-fetched, but it's not far-fetched. Yeah. <laughs> With a capital F. When I first heard it, it was far-fetched. By the way, by the way, I just got a call. Apparently, the Jerusalem municipality needs your building for the hundredth uh, anniversary for the Olympic You're Games. You're adorable. They've, <laughs> they've, they've, Thanks for adding stress to <laughs> my life today. The, the, <laughs> apparently, the Olympic Village starts at the core <laughs> at your core at your new quarter, Rabbi Fitz. <laughs> uh, what can I tell you? You got a dream. You got a dream. It's the only way. And look at your dreams. That's what's so unique that you have had the, the – there's so many dreamers in Jewish history. So many – this coming Monday, again, we're doing a, a Zoom call with David Matlow. He's going to show us items from the Herzl collection. You know, there's so yeah. many dreamers in Jewish history. And I jokingly on Yom Atzmaud, I don't know if you heard or saw that show or not, but when Mayor Weingarten was on with me during Zoom, I had Herzl next to me. Everyone's, you know, laughing that I have the Herzl. Mm-hmm. And I'm literally, and I know it sounds funny and looked ridiculous, but I am literally saying into his ear what Israel has become. You envision, you dreamt about it, standing on the, you know, on the balcony of the Three Kings Hotel in Basel. You dreamt about it in 1901 and, and throughout your entire life. And, and I have to tell you, you need to know what's going on now. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. Remember, uh, on a charter flight, we sat next to each other, and I showed you that picture of uh, the eventual, eventual Aliyah Center that I would one day want to build in Ushalayim. You remember that? That's right. I said, keep this to you. This is confidential, but this is a, a dream. That's right. Oh, my gosh. And the dream is going to be true. The whole thing is unbelievable. I'll tell you. Just incredible. 
Ah, uh, who would have believed it? Anyway, everybody, we wish a Mazal Tov to Rabbi Fast and the entire Nefesh B'Nefesh family, 8664 Aliyah, nbn.org.il. By, by the way, Rabbi Fast, one last thing. One last thing. Yeah, I'm with you. One of the, I mean, we, you and I have discussed this a million, no, I shouldn't say a million, because I think we've discussed Parsha Shlach more often, but, <laughs> but I, I, you know, Moses himself, Moses himself pleads to God to reverse his decision about him not being allowed to go into the land of Israel. And look how close he was. Look at the geography, how close Moses actually was to the land of Israel. Certainly close enough to see it that we're told, you know, explicitly in the in the in the Torah. Mm-hmm. And 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 he never had the privilege. He dreamt about it. Boy, did he dream about it and thought about it and wanted it so badly. And, and was never able to achieve it. And we have this unbelievable privilege of being there whenever we want. I know. I know the COVID, you know, asterisk. I get it. But being there whenever we want, living there if we wish. Now if someone does want to see their grandchildren in Israel, there is an option, and that's called Aliyah. There is still a way to go to, to see the kids in the Holy Land, even during this pandemic. And it's just sometimes mind-boggling that the greatest desire of the greatest man in our history was never fulfilled, and yet we could do it almost in an instant in our own lives. Anyway. Very humbling. Yeah, it really is something. Mazal Tov, thank you. Thank you, my dear friend. And thank th- you so much. And I can't I'm- wait to see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can't wait to see Oh, and by the Sunday way. and Monday and Tuesday until your listeners ban me from coming onto your airway. By the way, big news tomorrow, Rabbi Fast. Big, big news. I know you catch up. You catch up. You I... you write the worst wrong in history. It is unbelievable that you are, Mom, you know exactly what I was going to say. You we align our souls and our, and our Torah readings. We have the double Parsha. You have the single Parsha. And we do, on the 4th of July, we do finally catch up and i like the way you put it, it, it I, what did you say mistake what did you call it colossal error what did you call it <laughs> no i just said we write it wrong but it's okay but what? you just know this is this is very personal to me do you know what my bar mitzvah partial was what was it wow talk about a real long partial to learn but yeah so when you talk about this historical wrong and being unaligned um diaspora israel um, and not being in sync, uh, it has a little personal rub as well. Because <laughs> uh, made a 13-year-old learn two parashas. And it's funny because th- because yesterday we were having to be discussing this because of a new uh, a new um, uh, kids chumash that came out. It, it, this these two parashas, your bar mitzvah sedras, have so many episodes in them. Everything oh in Jewish history happened in these two parshios. It's unbelievable. <laughs> from from Miriam and Aaron dying to the hitting it, of the it, hitting it, of the rock. To, I mean, it's just there's so much stuff. It's in like it. they were running out of space. Okay, we're gonna fit everything in now. <laughs> it really is funny. Uh, uh, by the way, one other thing. One other thing before you leave me. How I'm not leaving you. How interesting. How interesting. And I don't know exactly uh, what your uh, uh, when your birthday is, but how interesting that your that your bar mitzvah celebration is so close to Parsha Shlach, but after Parsha Shlach. 
There's got to be something there, Rabbi Fast. I, I will work on this one. I'm going to work, work on this Good one. Good luck. It's Good luck. I, I, don't, I don't see the connection, <laughs> but I'm sure you'll find in something. Other words, in other words, you were, thi- <laughs> you were this close. You were this close to literally being tied to the Parsha that is most associated with you, but God felt, you know what? We're going to delay this a week or two. Very, Let's give him a break. Let's very, give him a break and let him speak about other Torah. And <laughs> very fascinating. Uh, continued success, Mazal Tov, and I cannot wait to actually see you face-to-face in the Holy Land. 100%. Can't wait. The You're one, one of the first people that I reached out to after we got the news of the building. I, I, you know I thank you for that. Uh, Mamish, what a celebration. What an international celebration, and uh, just incredible for for everybody involved, Nefesh, the city of Jerusalem, the state of Israel, and of course the entire Jewish people. The co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh, Rabbi Yoshua Fass, on yet another special Thursday broadcast at JM in the AM. Thanks, Rabbi Fess. 8664-ALIA-NBN.org.IL. NBN.org.IL. What an amazing conversation. That was my conversation with Rabbi Yeshua Fass of Nefesh Benefesh. Caroline Glick visited us recently via telephone. We spoke about Black Lives Matter. We spoke about the uh, leadership in uh, Israel and in the Jewish community in general. Caroline Glick, my guest Recently on JM, the AM. Here she is on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, Caroline Glick is with us live via telephone. I thank her for uh, agreeing to join us this morning. She is a, a brilliant columnist, an incredible author. She is. Um, uh, she has most recently written about the silent American Jews. Why are American Jews refusing to stand up for themselves? Caroline Glick, welcome back to JM in the AM. No, oh, it's great being back on your show. Thanks. I appreciate. I appreciate that. Great to have you on. Why has so much anti-Semitism seeped into the Black Lives Matter protest demonstrations? Well, I think that Black Lives Matter, as I wrote in my in my latest column, is really a, um, structurally anti-Semitic. I think they have um, they have. Uh, anti-Semitism woven into the cloth of their anti-Americanism. So when you read their platform, it's not just that they are anti-Israel per se, but along with everything else that they do, they also oppose Israel. It's that um, in, uh, opposing Israel is part of their opposition to the United States. Uh, they blame American support for Israel in racism. They say that um, uh, supplying Israel with arms, the United States is 
enlarging the military-industrial complex, taking jobs overseas, making American citizens complicit with Israel's crimes, which they claim include genocide and apartheid, and that because the United States is, is spending so much money on its military-industrial complex, it doesn't have any money for social welfare programs. So as, as they see it, uh, uh, black people in the United States because of American support for Israel. They see a link to it. It's insane, and it has no basis in fact, including Israel's alleged crimes have no basis in fact. But they've woven together this entire uh, tapestry in which Israel and the Jews who support Israel are part and parcel of this evil America and, in fact, responsible for it, that American support for Israel is, is sort of the original sin along with, I guess, other original sins. But the way that they portray it, there's not a specific section on Israel in the Black Lives Matter platform. Instead, it's part of a, of a, of a position paper on American uh, military-industrial complex, military budgets. And so it's, it's seen as part of a greater whole of American evil. Caroline Glick is with us live via telephone. With that in mind, it is absurd uh, and and the, the the truth is, I'm sure you would use even stronger words than that for anyone who cares about Israel to in any way support the Black Lives Matter creed. Correct? Yes, and I'll tell you something else that's sort of uh, not sort of it's very disheartening. Um, you you find an an intense desire to deny this among American Jews, so that. I can't tell you how many times I've been uh, tweeting about this and, and writing about this over the past several weeks, and um, I and I get more and more demands, angry demands for proof that claim I'm lying. You're lying. You're lying. And so, a few weeks ago, um, I first thing I did because what happened was Black Black Lives Matter removed their removed their uh, platform from the Internet, all of the links from 2016 that, that were placed when, when, the platform, when the platform was initially published were removed, okay? So I said, um, I said, I said look, the platform itself isn't there. Here are quotes from uh, contemporary articles that came out about the platform. And then a reader sent to me their new place where their platform now appears. So I posted that. They said, well, we can't find it. We don't see it. We don't see it. So what I did was several weeks later, I posted it on my on my Facebook page, and I gave all of the actual quotes from the platform. Well, this is called the Movement for Black Lives. That's not Black Lives Matter, but the Movement for Black Lives is even larger than Black Lives Matter. It encompasses Black Lives Matter and another 19 organizations. So the point is, is that each time they were denying, I, I, I mean, dozens and dozens of angry emails uh, saying, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. Not only do they not want to know the truth, but they actively deny it, and and they accuse me of lying for pointing it out. So this is, I'm getting very very dramatic reactions uh, from American Jews uh, to the truth. They don't want to know. Yeah, I hear that, um, and and I think that there's really two factors when it comes to that. Number one, there really are plenty of Jews who are sincerely. Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 sincerely taking the position that Black Lives Matter is taking, uh, whether it's the media that's convincing them or their own Jewish guilt that's demonstrating it, uh, they just feel that the the cause is just and that they need to be behind this just cause. 
Uh, the other piece to it, though, is the media, and, and you do allude to it, and I know that, that you are frustrated uh, as you write about it, and believe you me, anyone who's uh, affiliated with the Jewish community here who cares is frustrated as well, that there was basically no reaction to the pogrom in Los Angeles, the one that destroyed synagogues and storefronts, the ones that were uh, the, the, the attacks that were literally targeting uh, Jewish establishments. Uh, it is very, very difficult, uh, as you know from Jewish history, to deal with state-sponsored anti-Semitism. It's almost impossible. And reacting to it usually even makes it worse if we look at modern Jewish history. Um, now, I'm not claiming that now we are dealing with a situation of state-sponsored anti-Semitism. I wouldn't dare say that about the United States. But when there are government officials and police who are reluctant to act and speak up, and when the media is convincing everybody that there is a just cause that if you dare are against it or dare question it, you are an you yourself are a racist or somebody who doesn't belong in this country. That's a tremendous amount of pressure. I'm not trying to excuse Jewish leadership. Believe you me, I'm just as frustrated with them as you are. But they are up against a, 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 what what seems to be a real losing battle here. You know, I I I think that uh, I mean I don't disagree with you. I think that it's it's very daunting the challenge, and I'll tell you more than that. You know, when you look at, you don't have strong Jewish leadership uh, fighting for Jewish rights in the Democratic Party. So, right. for instance, Elliot Engel, right. who was just defeated by a Black Lives Matter supporter, Jamal Bowman, um, he, over the past few years, and also Nita Lowy, they were not fighting the anti-Semites that were rising in their party. Right. He didn't make that big of a fuss right. when Ilhan Omar was placed in the Foreign Affairs Committee. Right. And um, he is trying to cater to uh, J Street and uh, tempering his opposition to American aid uh, to uh, the Palestinian Authority, despite their finance of terrorism. So he was he was uh, hedge clipping to try to go along to get along. So when you don't have strong leaders among Democratic Jews who are calling people out for this, you know the, the National Jewish Democratic uh, uh, what the, the Jewish Democratic. Um, uh, body inside of the uh, Democratic Party, um, they refused to endorse um, Ilhan Omar's primary opponent. So you see that there isn't a strong Jewish voice, so that makes it very difficult. Um, But what's really unforgivable is is the uh, desire of the Jews to join the jackals right. to join them to to demand that the Jewish community stand with Black Lives Matter to pretend that there are communal uh, uh, that there there is communal guilt right. for anti-black racism when the opposite is the case. The American Jews, especially you know liberal Jews, took leading roles in the civil rights movement and in the support of black institutions in the United States. Uh, really from the get-go, and so there is no communal da- uh, guilt to try to expunge. And they're taking this on, which is not fair to themselves or to their children, and they're also lying to themselves about the nature of Black Lives Matter. And just to give you a sense, you were talking about whether state-supported anti-Semitism, certainly institutionally-supported uh, anti-Semitism. And I'm writing a book right now about the American Jewish community, um, and I'm Looking at you know Jewish uh, communities through history, and one of the things that I noticed just recently in my research, I was looking at a, a Dreyfus case in France in 1895, 
And interestingly, that really spurned, uh, that spawned, I mean, the, the institutional anti-Semitism uh, on the French right. It, uh, it institutionalized as opposed to just the positions of a few. But um, it was the Jewish community's attempt at all costs before the Dreyfus affair to try to curry favor with an increasingly anti-Semitic establishment in France. So, for instance, in 1891, the French signed a secret uh, defense pact with Tsarist Russia, and this was at the height of the, of the uh, pogroms. And uh, the French uh, synagogues in Paris said a prayer for the Tsar to try to show what patriots they were. And what was interesting about that was that the anti-Semites thought that they were pathetic and lying, so that even when they went out of their way to pray for and celebrate the most active and dangerous anti-Semitic leader on the face of the planet at that time, Tsar Alexander III, the reason there's a large American Jewish community, because he forced them all out of Russia, um, you have... You have the Jews in France trying to celebrate them, and nobody takes them seriously. And I think that the Jews who are celebrating this structurally anti-Semitic Black Lives Matter movement are making fools of themselves yep. and the community, and they are increasing the contempt that people on the left feel towards American Jews. They're not winning any friends. They're making their enemies feel even greater contempt for them. No They're question. not going to change anybody's minds about Jews. They're only going to increase their hatred. No question about it. Plus, I'm sure you're aware of what's going on with the police forces here in the major cities, really, yes. r around the entire country. I mean, at this point, the only way to uh, for anybody to, to secure the businesses in Los Angeles that are Jewish-owned is for volunteers, as they are right now, you know, taking up arms, literally, and, you know, and, and taking shifts day and night in order to protect the establishments. You cannot depend on the police force. I'm not, I'm not even blaming the police because of what government officials have done uh, to completely, uh, n maybe not defund completely the police, but com com completely uh, dismantle uh, the police and, and their effectiveness well around the country. You know, on that I'll just add what an incredibly short memory the community has because, you know, just a few months ago after the massacres in Poway and in Pittsburgh and other anti-Jewish activities have been going on, you know, the Jewish communities around the country were praising the police and calling for closer cooperation between the community and the police, and rightly so, because Jewish institutions are under threat, not only from white nationalists, as we saw in Pittsburgh, but also from black anti-Semites, as we saw on a daily basis in Borough Park and Williamsburg, and of course in Jersey City, so, you know, and, and Muncie. And so you're, you're looking at... Uh, a sudden about face against their own physical security, which again is insane because obviously Nation of Islam, which is giving security to Black Lives Matter, is not going to be protecting Jewish institutions, Jewish schools, <laughs> Jewish synagogues, Jewish businesses from their own people who are attacking them. So the idea that the Jews in the United States have any option other than to support law enforcement, which of course they should just on the moral grounds, um, is, is crazy. I mean, it really is suicidal. It's suicidal on an institutional level, suicidal on a communal level, and it's suicidal on an individual level because people's lives really are at risk when you see that the community itself has been victimized by rabid anti-Semites 
anti-Semites and Semitism from both the left and the right over the past two years in a way that we really haven't seen in American history, at least not since World War II. Um, you know, you're, you're, it, it's stunning that anybody could be this crazy and this irresponsible towards their own communities. Uh, are we very lucky to have a very strong state of Israel right now, or even a very strong state of Israel could, God forbid, be negatively affected by a uh, misguided Democratic Party? Well, look, obviously, you know, if if uh, Joe Biden wins, Israel is going to face the most anti-Semitic, not just anti, uh, anti-Israel, anti but really anti-Semitic when you look at the advisors that he's brought in uh, to be his presidential advisors, his campaign advisors on foreign policy. These are people who truly hate Israel and have said really disparaging things, many of them about American Jews who support Israel, especially APAC and others. So you're talking about, you know, an administration that's going to be far more hostile than Obama's, and Obama's was far more hostile than anything that anybody had ever seen before. So, you know, uh, Israel is going to be negatively impacted, but Israel can still defend itself because it's a nation state and it understands that it has interests. The problem that I'm becoming more and more concerned about with the American Jewish community is that increasingly leaders don't appear to think that American Jews have a right to communal interests or that it's their responsibility to defend and protect those communal interests. Instead, they're surrendering communal interests and the very right to have communal interests in the hope of creating favor with people and forces in the Democratic Party that are increasingly openly hostile towards them. And that, to me, is a real problem. So, yes, Israel, you know, we, we survived Obama and will survive, uh, you know, other difficulties and political storms because we're a rational state at the end of the day. But um, I, I'm much less um, uh, I'm much less confident about the ability of the American Jewish community uh, to do that because they don't seem they seem to have lost many of the communal leaders, uh, many of them, and in, an increasing and an increasing number and an increasing rate seem to have lost the script. They seem to have forgotten that their job is first and foremost to protect their own community. Yeah. Uh, again, I think the media has uh, turned us into zombies on that issue, but I certainly agree with you on the criticism. I'll let you go in a second. Caroline Glick, are you aware of the uh, spike in interest in Aliyah from North America right now? I am. And look, you know, uh, look, I mean, come rain or come shine, I think that it's important for American Jews uh, to really think about Aliyah as an option. And I'll give you another reason that has nothing to do with anti-Semitism in America. I live in a fraud, and there are a lot of new Olim who live in a fraud. And they live in a fraud, these young uh, Jewish families with a lot of kids, because um, they can get a really fantastic Jewish education for their children simply for free because they're in public schools. And when you're looking at the price of Jewish day schools in the United States, you really have to be rich to have a large family and be able to send them to school. So I think, you know, there are many, many reasons to come to Israel. Zionism, first and foremost, and enjoying and being part of participating in the adventure of Jewish freedom in our in our homeland, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's the greatest trip of my life. But I think that, you know, uh, there are many other pressing economic concerns of American Jews uh, specifically that really can be remedied um, by making Aliyah. So anti-Semitism aside, 
come on Ali, you know, we're waiting. And uh, the more the merrier. <laughs> That's for sure. Caroline Glick, you can check out the article I referenced. Just search uh, the silent American Jews. Why are American Jews refusing to stand up for themselves? Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. And let's let's all try to, try to defend ourselves. It's very important. Yeah, amen. We're going to try to get that message across to everybody, especially to Jewish leadership. Caroline Glick, check it out. Uh, check out her website and the brilliant articles that she writes. Monday morning broadcast, plenty more coming up. Thanks for joining us, everybody. (sighs) Yeah, a lot to consider there, a lot to consider. It is amazing when you put it in context. We made sure to align ourselves with the police forces again, rightfully so, after Jersey City and Pittsburgh and Poway and Williamsburg and Muncie and all these episodes that were happening, rightfully so. And now we are... uh, seeing so many members of the Jewish community align themselves with a movement that is so completely against law enforcement and against government officials who want to help, who want to be there for the uh, for those like us, upstanding citizens who are trying to conduct their lives properly. It really is amazing. Let's hope Jewish leadership wakes up, and uh, let's hope when it comes to the issues of uh, anti-Israel and anti-Semitism, among those who are now being uh, elected to the United States Congress and other positions in government. Let's hope that uh, there are some rational people who could take them on uh, at this point. Let's hope it's not too late. More coming up at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Caroline Glick, a recent conversation on JM in the AM. That does it for JM Rewind for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more coming up. Keep it on NSN, the Nahum Siegel Network.